When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mark, and we are joined by author Robert Duncan. He's led a pretty rock and roll life. He saw the Beatles live, walked out of the Who on their first U.S. tour, and played 22 with Mitch Ryder. One of his first writing assignments was interviewing Kiss on the same day Paul Stanley got his infamous rose tattoo. He became the first managing editor at Cream Magazine, working with the legendary Lester Bangs, and wrote the first ever unauthorized biography of Kiss. His amazing story of how he met his wife led to a honeymoon with the Oyster Cult. And he's also serenaded Sammy Hagar and Liza Minnelli. Go buy his novel, Loudmouth. It's hard to put down. Follow him on the socials to get news about his new books and possible movie. Follow us at Performance ANX. Subscribe, rate, and review. And buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. Merch is available at performanceanx.threadless.com. Now let's dig into Robert Duncan on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hi, this is Robert Duncan. I'm the author of Loudmouth, the novel. I'm a former managing editor of Cream Magazine, which seems to carry some currency these days. Uh, I'm in that Cream documentary, so go watch that. Uh, but you can uh, you can buy Loudmouth, my novel, in either paperback, um, ebook, or um, audio form at uh, just about anywhere there is a they sell books. And uh, if, again, if you've never read a book, I'll read it to you on the audio book. Uh, but uh, I, I've had such a great time here on performance anxiety. Uh, which, uh, which I, I, I have had no anxiety on performance anxiety. I've enjoyed it so much. And so thank you to, am I allowed to say thank you to Mark? Thanks. Thanks to Mark. And, uh, I, I, I'm going to beg him to come back someday. I'm a big fan of, uh, Morgan gear. Oh, me too. Uh, yeah, he's so much. He, well, he's who gave me your name, and he's he's just fun, and he's a really nice guy. We, we did a uh, backyard concert with him when he was. He called me because we used to at our office. We we have a bar of all things, nice private bar, and we uh, decided that. And we did do, did a bunch of shows, and, and one of them we did a bunch of. Oh, we had a bunch of the folks from Fluff and gravy records up in uh, Portland and, yeah. and Morgan was one of them. And so I got friendly. And then when he came a few, and then it, that was like three or four years ago. And then he was coming out West and he called me and said, Hey, uh, you still doing those concerts? And I said, uh, no, I said, but I've been thinking about doing a backyard concert. I said, would you be into that? 
Yeah, he would, and he was, and he, he stayed for a couple of days, and we had a great time. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was really fun. We got to be good friends. So. Yeah, he uh, he came. And people loved him, too, at, at the show. People are like, oh, my God, this guy's so great. Oh, he is. He's really talented. And uh, I got his uh, his PR guy got up with me and, and was like, hey, you want to interview this guy? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. Sounds good. I'll, I'll talk to anybody. So... Uh, I reached out to him like a the day before a day of and uh, just because I had a, I had a question about something or other and we just ended up I'm at work and we just ended up texting the like the entire day before yeah. we even got on the show so you know we got real comfortable with each other <laughs> and then uh, about I'd, I'd say a month later he was I'm in Virginia and yeah. he was coming up to Baltimore to tour and, and you know I'm, I'm about 75 miles due west of dc so i'm not too far from baltimore so yeah. he's like hey, i'm gonna be at this dive bar in baltimore so uh, you know if you get a chance to swing by i'm like uh, yeah i'll make it that definitely so went up there and uh hung out before the show grabbed a beer he came up to the show i took a whole bunch of pictures i used to be a photographer so i took a whole bunch of pictures and uh we hung out for a little while after the show and he's like, man, he's like, this is, he's like, I, I could hang out with you all night, but I got to go to the next show. I'm like, yeah, I got like an hour and a half ride back to my house. So I, I yeah. probably ought to get going anyway, but we've been in touch ever since. Oh, that's good. Well, you're a loyal friend. That's good. Oh, but, but that's, I loaned him an amplifier for his, his uh, oh, show nice. up, uh, uh, out here. And he had to, he had to, he had to go back down to Santa Cruz for, for a show after our show. And then he came back up, and I think that's when he spent the night again with with the family. Anyways, we had a great we had a great time, and and we drank whiskey and beers and just kind of raised hell. That's so. awesome. Well, he's a great guy. And I got to thank him for getting this in motion because uh, I've been I've really been enjoying reading the book. Oh, good, good, so it's good. Been, it's been really good. really cool book. Well, I said before I got on, I said I said to my wife, I said, "God damn it, I'm hungry." I said. So I thought, well, I get, but there was nothing really to eat in the fridge. So I thought, well, I'll Ooh. Drink, drink some fancy Oregon Porter, which is just my favorite. Oh, that is, I like porters. I've, I don't have. Pardon me. No, no, help yourself. I, I was thinking about uh, pour myself a little of the Buffalo Trace white dog. Oh, please do. You know what I was reading yesterday? I was reading about, um, you know, Pappy Van Winkle, that whisk, that that bourbon. Yes. And when my son turned 21, which is a few years ago, we got him a bottle of 23-year-old Pappy. Oh, wow. And, it was, and, uh, and then, speaking of Morgan Gear... And he, my son doesn't really drink much, and but he he thought it was fun, and he's yeah. into the and um, but you know, and then he moved. He lives in Asheville now. He knows he knows Morgan. Oh, cool! And, and in fact, he called me when he moved to Asheville. He says, "Oh, I, I I met this really cool musician, and blah blah blah." And, and I said, "Well, what's his name?" He says, "You wouldn't know him. You couldn't. You didn't know." Him. And I, and he says, I said, no, just tell me his name. And he says, Morgan, Morgan gear. And I said, all right. I said, all right, well just check your email. And I sent him a picture of me and Morgan together. Uh, <laughs> Morgan with his cream tattoo. I see that photo. Anyways, when, Mor when Morgan came here for my son left a bunch of that Pappy Van Winkle and, uh, and we moved to Asheville. And so when Morgan was here at, at late night after his show, we got into my son's, we finished <laughs> off my son's Pappy Van Winkle. <laughs> so 
But I discovered that Buffalo Trace owns Pappy Van Winkle now and, and oh. has for like 30 or so years. Really? Uh, there's a new book out about Pappy Van Winkle. In fact, I sent it to my son yesterday, and uh, it's got a got a really good review. It sounded really good, and, and uh, yeah. So Buffalo Trace, I didn't I didn't realize That's that. Wild. I didn't know that either. I lo- I love Buffalo Trace. Yeah, I don't. I, I'm sure I've had it, but I just don't remember. Oh, it's Pappy Van Pappy Van Winkle is is fucking good. Though. Yeah, that's good stuff. I had a. <laughs> Gosh, uh, I, I want to say over a year ago now, I had a, a chef on the show, uh, Selena Teo, and she's she's awesome. She's been on um, Top Chef Masters and Iron Chef America, and she's Where's got. She, what, what's her restaurant? Uh, it's in uh, Kansas City. It's called the Belfry. She oh, she used cool. to own one called Julian right there. She's she's a James Beard Award winner. She's just amazing. Yeah. And, oh, that's uh, cool. Her, if you ever get to, to Kansas City, stop by because she has got a bar with uh, 350 different types of whiskey. 250 yeah. of them are bourbons. Wow. So, wow. well, I, I, my, my, uh, my family's from the South. So we, we grew up, we grew up drinking what was left over from our parents' bourbon <laughs> when, they, when they went out for dinner after their cocktails. Yeah. Go around and, <laughs> drink, drink thing. Well, so speaking of that, so tell me a little bit about. I see you've written a, a novel, so it's not a memoir or an autobiography, but it is very autobiographical. Yes, there you go. There you go. That's, <laughs> that's why you're the writer and I'm the podcaster. Well, <laughs> and, and memoir e, so I get to, you know, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 the first thing I get from everybody, including all the editors, I tried to uh, pedal it to, was was like, why don't you just make this a memoir? Right. And I said it's not a memoir, and it is a, uh, and the reason it isn't a memoir is because for, there's many reasons. I mean, the number one reason is I wanted to kind of be able to go with the flow as I'm writing. I didn't want to have to be thinking, you know, I didn't want to have to be looking over, over my shoulder at the facts. Right. You know, I, you know if I'm on a roll here and because, you know, I think it's all about flow in writing as it is in music, as it is in whatever sports. Yeah. Uh, they tell me. <laughs> uh, but uh so so you know that was that was the first thing and and you know but there's other factors like my memoir ain't so good after <laughs> for all those years of drink i think there's a lot of drinking in the book and it's that's pretty much factual yeah and uh so my memoir i, I used to call my friend who i'd been out with and i'd say yeah what happened you know, say, oh, shit, dude, you hear what you did. So I don't ordinarily drink beer at five o'clock. Well, you know, these days I have it. But uh, but um, so so I mean, for those two reasons. Um, and, and you know what? I, I also wanted to have the complete license to uh, leave out the boring parts. You know, so when I at one point, I, I you know, it, it had the strange uh, genesis of the book, but I, but at one point when I thought, okay, well, maybe I'm writing a memoir. So I was trying to write the facts and it would be like, oh, well, I moved from Minnesota to San Francisco, back to Detroit, back to here. And I thought, oh man, I'm boring myself with this. So <laughs> I said, I, I gotta, I gotta straighten this shit out. And, and it's stuff like, 
Yeah, I mean, there's stuff that I move locales, and, and then the the not not negligible factor was I wanted to give those who I per- slagged off. I wanted to have a fig leaf to say, well, it's a novel. It's not really you, including the the uh, the really. Um, abrasive uh, obnoxious mother <laughs> my my mother is still alive at 98 oh wow well yeah. i won't i won't tell her anything about it well she I, she she asked me she says have you finished the book yet no i haven't you know <laughs> and then she had a few um then a few of her friends a couple of her friends said hey robert's book is out and uh and she call me up about that she's and she's getting enough she's pretty sharp but she's getting enough off that i could say i don't know what they're talking about yeah. you know <laughs> and i she's old can, can i read it when you do it i said no i said it's really nasty she said well i've i've read nasty i've read you know french authors <laughs> <laughs> and i said well you know different kind of nasty yeah <laughs> so i forbade her from reading it so. oh man <laughs> So Can you, you imagine that at my oh. age, I got to worry about my fucking mother? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Did writing come before music or was music the first love? Well, music, you know, I was always I was always doing both. Okay. I was always doing both. You know, when I remember when I was a little kid, I had a uh, oh, I had a one of those kind of golden books or it's one of those books. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was, it was somewhere second or third grade. And I, and I was, I, I was enough interested in writing that I started writing in the empty pages and the, you know, the, of, of this, this golden book I had. Right. And, and, and I thought this will, this will be my book. So I think back on that, I think, wow, you know, that was, I was eight years old or something. So I was doing that. But I always loved music. So when I, you know, got prepubescent, uh, you know, when I was 12 years old, sixth grade, I started playing in my first band and I played and I pretty much haven't stopped. The downstairs of my house here is a recording studio. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So, and uh, like I just, uh, over the last, over the summer, I did the audio book for Loudmouth down there. Damn, that's... And that's... That has just come out as of this. Just, just fucking came out. I don't. Yeah, yeah. It came out in in, in Apple. It's going to be on Amazon and Audible and all that. Awesome. But somehow they've got a. They are the publisher said you know they may be waiting for the print stuff to sell out. You know they want to. <laughs> you know it's it's some politics of publishing, but oh, yes, sure. but it's now out as of a few days ago on on Apple books. So I'm excited about it. So I did that downstairs. Yeah. We used to I recorded a bunch of records downstairs, my own and others. Oh, and, awesome. uh, so. so somewhere out yes. there, th- there is a Robert Duncan enhanced version of pokey little puppy or something. <laughs> well, yeah, I wish I could remember what it was, what the book was supposed to be about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, yes. But, so music is music has been a, a, a love of mine, and I did have a you know in the book the character has a mother, a grandmother who was an opera singer. I did have a yeah. grandmother who was a pretty well known touring opera singer. Oh wow! Not that I ever heard her sing, or you know, they were such a it was such a grim household that you know oh. they never had music on or anything. Oh so, wow! Uh, I think my uh, yes, I think my grandparents didn't have the most wonderful marriage, but. Uh, 
but anyway, so so I was really into music, and then you know, and I, I had a much older brother who introduced introduced me. He he had Elvis blasting out of the dashboard of his hot rod. Oh, nice! Uh, which scared the shit out of me as a little kid, <laughs> and uh, and then of course I, I you know I turned twelve when the British invasion hit, uh, and. I was completely captivated by the Beatles, then the Stones, and then the Kinks and everybody else. And uh, and eventually I merged my, you know, I was always a good writer in schools. The only thing I did well at, I flunked math every and arithmetic and <laughs> every year. And, um, and every summer had to do summer school. And, uh, but I was always a good writer. And when I, uh, at a certain point, I started writing songs as well. Because I think okay. I started... As a, as a kid wanting to be a little older than, than eight years old. But when I was, by the time I was in high school and college, I wanted to be a poet. And so, uh, okay. And then, so then I, that, I became a songwriter too. So I've written a whole bunch of songs and that was my, everybody's always like, man, those are good lyrics. I was like, so I had the two things going. So you were so. pretty young when you actually started playing out in bands then you said. Well, I was 12 years old when I, in, in our first band when we played the, the school assembly. Oh, and we used to play, but, but anytime there was a dance, like, you know, they used to have dances in people's basements and stuff oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we were always, always the band. We were the only band in the in the grade school, so. Uh, oh, man. Yeah. Same, <laughs> same in high school, you know. And we started out, it was slightly before the British invasion, so we started out playing uh, instrumentals. We, you know, we played the... Uh, the ventures oh, and uh, oh, you know all that shit, and and then we graduated to uh, playing you know stone songs and music with and lyrics. All. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we, we, I, I was early, and, and and then when I went to you know I dropped out of college to play in bands, and similar to the character in Loudmouth. Uh, so spe- speaking of the character in Loudmouth, he got a chance to go see. The Beatles. Or, well, you got a chance to go see the Beatles. Is that that's so did he? Okay, I'll make I gotta make sure I'm getting the things right. <laughs> see, this is the weird thing. You I'm, know what? I get completely confused about it too. I'm like, oh right. Oh, that's me. I that was, talking about that, <laughs> that was but the thing. Like, I wanted to tell you that I I'm, the book is is really engrossing. It, it's hard to remember that it's a novel and not an autobiography. You know, well, there's another thing, you know, when, when you read Jack Kerouac's On the Road, you know, everybody knows that a certain character is Allen Ginsberg and, and this is Neil Cassidy and, you know, all the names have been changed. Yeah. But it's like, I always, I, I think, who cares? And I also don't think, you know, modern young, young people who may not, I'm spitting out my beer, who may <laughs> not ever read this. They, uh, you know, they don't give a shit. I don't think. No, you know? so, no, not at all. So, so I, I think. Well, who cares? So, and the the editors all said it because they think it's much easier to to market a, a memoir because you can tell it's a true story. Well, I'll, I, yeah, I, I can see that. I guess that, that that's what they think. You know, but I, I all the publishing industry is so antiquated and, and and to me out of it i can't you know I, I, so I, it seems to have not hurt the thing so how uh, when so when did you see the beatles and how did you get in to see them oh I, I i well just like my guy in the book i uh 
<laughs> I had a friend who's who's uh, who was kind of my kid my age who was he was always a lead guitarist in a band. He he was a great guitar player, still yeah. is. And um, and he was kind of my. I came from Minnesota to New York, and I was a real hick. And he introduced <laughs> me to all this. You know, really kind of hipster music, okay. and talking. So we're ten. You yeah. know, 10, we're in fourth grade, but he was. This kid was really he was smart, and he was just really plugged in. His father was kind of a. They they you know he wasn't. It was Irish mafia. They call him in oh, New York. Okay, and but he was kind of a. You know, and he so he knew everybody everywhere, and he so he got us. You know, tickets were sold out, and he got us. He got us seats in the press box at Shea Stadium in 1966. Wow, August of 1966. I could. So, my friend uh, and I, just like in the, just like the characters in the book, took our. I think it was our first ever dates. You know, yes. we took our. We, you know, hey, you want to go see the Beatles? And yes. you think you know? At least you get a peck on the cheek or something. Else. Yeah. But there was no, you uh, know. Uh, so we were sitting in the press box, and the interesting thing is, we were we were the only ones in the press box because the press wasn't really overly interested. In, oh wow! In, in going to rock concerts, I mean, the Beatles had become a phenomenon, of course, by then. Yeah, but but there was no real, you know, rock press at that time. Right, so, so they weren't being covered at all, really. Yeah, so so the press box was empty at Shea Stadium. Jeez. So that was that was really cool. I mean, you know, the the sonic experience was, you know, you couldn't. It was hard to hear him, and I mean, you could hear, but it was, you know, the screaming, you know, it's insect screams right. of, of a million girls, <laughs> young girls. So, so yeah, that was our. Uh, that's how I saw the Beatles. That's when I saw the Beatles. I mean, and it was like they to me they were the they were the godhead. So it was like, you oh, know. Yeah. And today, I say this in the book. It, it it feels like sometimes it feels like I say I saw the Beatles, and it's like somebody saying, you know, I don't know. They saw you know uh, uh, Sarah Bernhardt, you know, or something. <laughs> it just it, I realized to, to uh, younger people, it just seems so ancient. Yeah, and, and the truth is, it is like fifty years ago. <laughs> that, yeah. But it was, you know, it was just what an experience to, just doing it, getting to worship the Godhead in person. Oh, so. yeah. And, you know, and seeing bands that you idolize in person, there's nothing there's nothing like it. And I know I, I heard that you uh, you did get a chance to hang out with one of your heroes at one point, Mitch Ryder. Oh, my God, Mitch Ryder. Yeah. Yeah. Mitch Ryder was really um, he was. Yeah, he was Mitch Ryder. Mitch Ryder in the Detroit Wheels. I don't know how. I, I don't know how savvy the audience is. I mean, I'm not saying they're dumb. I'm just saying they're they're younger. And uh, maybe, yeah, uh, maybe. Mitch, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels were just fucking great. You know, he was called by some the king of blue eyed soul, and he had just an amazing voice and an amazing scream. And he did devil with the blue dress on. Yeah, Jenny. T Ride, CC Ryder, Socket to Me Baby, yeah. and they, he was from Detroit, you know. And, and at some point, by the way, he was he 
as the seventies, uh, you know, as he moved into the seventies, he was a very, he was like 19 years old when he was a, a star. Wow. Yeah. So I, I went to see, it was maybe my first concert. I went to see him at the RKO 58th street movie theater. And it was one of those old fashioned package shows, even to me in 1966 <laughs> uh, or whatever it was, 67. It, it was like, Oh, this is kind of old school. Oh, wow. You know, it was yeah. the kind of thing Alan Freed used to do. And, you know, they play uh, the Brooklyn Fox and all this stuff. So this was, this was a package show and they would have like, you know, 10 or 15 acts on it. And they would each play like 20 minutes yeah. and they would do three shows a day. Yeah. And yep. You know, so, so we, you know, what, what we were like 13 and we went to a matinee and we went to see Mitch Ryder. And, and, and I remember standing outside the, the thing and kind of contemplating the other bands. Well, one of the other bands is Sam and Dave. We were big Sam and yeah. Dave fans. Uh, oh, there was a band, that band, the Vanilla Fudge, and they were kind of proto-metal band. I like the Vanilla Fudge. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I forget who else, but um, there was lots of great bands. And by the way, white and black acts, there was no segregation. You know? Oh, yeah. It, it was kind of like AM radio, and, which was the dominant force at, at the time. FM hadn't really happened, but, but I'm standing outside and I'm and with my couple little, you know, our little macho prepubescent friends. <laughs> and we're looking at the posters, the, the list of bands and the post pictures of the bands. And one of the bands had this guy, he had long blonde curly hair and these most beautiful blue eyes. <laughs> and, and I'm the, this was the lead singer in this band. And I'm looking at, it, I'm thinking like, Oh, no fucking way! This guy, you know, we had never we had never heard of the band. They were from England. They were from England, and it was just like that was that was offensive to our emerging machismo. Right. So so we we saw Mitch Ryder and Sam and Dave and all the bands we wanted to see, and then the, the last band to come on, I guess, was uh, was the Who. But we had walked out oh. long before. So that was the Who's first. Oh performance in america their first tours they did that like wow. package tour and uh, now i subsequently became a huge huge uh, who fan but i thought we thought uh, you know roger dalty daltry's kind of feminine appearance was just uh, that was an that was an affront to our <laughs> to our little machismo so but anyways not mitch so we saw him there and then about um oh shit it must be you know 10 years later or so i had been i had worked at cream and one of the guys i worked with at cream eric genheimer he had gone on to play guitar with Mitch Ryder after working at Cream. Okay. And he called me up one day and said, hey, uh, Mitch is coming to town. Called him. His real name is Billy Levice. So he said, Billy's coming to town. He says, and I told him you'd be a good person to, to show him around uh, and nice. uh, have a good time. Mitch liked to party. Okay. So fucking if I didn't get a call from Mitch Ryder. Oh my and it was God. like, <laughs> and like, Oh shit. You know, this is so we went out with, so I said, yeah, let's do it. Let's go out. And we went out and, um, I don't even, you know, I know we went to our bar, our kind of favorite bar. That was a place we lived more than we did our apartment, the, right. the bells, the bells of hell. And then we went other places and I don't remember any of them because we got so drunk, <laughs> but I know that we wound up 
in uh, at about five in the morning at a place called the Venus Social Club, and it was an illegal after-hours bar, oh. and it was actually a literal dive bar. We had to go down steps to a basement, oh, and wow. and it was in the kind of the old uh, section of the of Greenwich Village, the mafia section. There was all the you know there was always a mafia social clubs and all that. So this yeah. was the Venus <laughs> Social Club. And you actually had to knock on the door and say, you know, in, in our case, you had to name the bartender you had come from. So we get Nick sent us and they let you, and then they close <laughs> wow. the little thing and they let you in. Oh my and, gosh. <laughs> and it has, so obviously it has booze, but it also has gambling. So, but, but the gambling was instead of uh, the uh, 21 blackjack, they had a, a version of it called 22. So you oh. had to get to 22 to win. And you can, I'm not a math <laughs> major, as I said, but God damn, man, you can't imagine how <laughs> impossible it is to, to win. You know, it just fucks your odds up. And then they also had a, um, a wheel of fortune where they would spin it. And you know, the guy's just got a little pedal under there. Yeah. He's, just, he's just making sure you don't win. <laughs> right. And, you know, and you're so fucked up at five in the morning that, that you, you know, well, you're disappointed when you have no more money yeah. for boost. But Mitch Ryder, Mitch Ryder loved our night out so much. My my childhood hero, he grabbed me in the middle of the uh, Venus Social Club and said to me, this is the greatest night of my life. And, <laughs> and, and, and it was like, it was, you know, oh, what more could you ask? Yes. What more could you ask? Oh, so, my gosh. Uh, and he, he, the postscript is he came back about a year later. And called me up, said, "Hey, let's do it again." Blah blah blah. blah. And I'm like, yeah, "I had a, I had a book contract at the time for a, a book called The Noise." And I'm like, "Oh, dude, I passed deadline for my book, and I, I, I just really can't." And I turned down my childhood hero, and he never called me again. He was. He was, I think he was irritated. Oh, he was done with you. Yeah. And I, I loved him so much. And we, I, I apparently had, we had the great time that <laughs> we went out. So that was my encounter. Yeah. That was my childhood hero. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So at what point did you decide to go and, and pursue writing professionally right. instead of music? Well, oh, and by the way, eventually Mitch Ryder, as the 70s wore on, I was going to say, became, was managed by Barry Kramer, who the uh, publisher of Cream Magazine. And in fact, at the very beginning of the Cream documentary, which if you haven't seen, it's, it's really good. Um, there's some old, some vintage black and white footage, and they're going around the room. It's the Cream offices, and they're going around the room asking people, uh, you know, who are you and what are you doing? It was an old news footage. And they come to this guy with long hair and a mustache, and I forget if he had a beard, but he says, "Oh, I sell drugs downstairs," and that was that was actually Mitch Ryder because they rehearsed <laughs> in the, they rehearsed in the in the Cream Building uh, oh, back wow. in the day. Oh so, man! Anyway, it's just a, just a weird kind of continuous something or other. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> how did I go from writing? Well, I I know how I went from um, music to writing. So I. Uh, you know, I love music, but it was like, and we had a band that was, you know, we had a series of bands and they kept, kept getting better. And then, you know, we were really, it felt like we were on the verge of something good happening. And, um, and then as always happened, you know, 
the guitar player would quit. Oh, is my girlfriend doesn't like me doing this on the weekends yeah. or whatever. And, and, you know, it would, so the band would always kind of implode and there'd be a few survivors and then you'd try to find other people. And so, yeah. so the, you know, the umpteenth time this happens. And, and at this point I'm like, like 20 years old, I guess. And at the umpteenth time this happens, I'm like, fuck this shit you know i'm i'm gonna go do something i can do without bass players or guitar players or anybody else just me right and um and i thought well i you know what am i gonna do and i thought well i've always been a good writer and, you know they say you should write what you know about which i i now know is is bullshit but, <laughs> uh, but at the time i didn't i didn't know anything so i thought well what do i know about well i know about music which i is also bullshit because <laughs> i later i discovered that i didn't know a tenth of what these some of these guys like you know some of these great rock writers yeah. knew but um that's how and i moved and i left new york I said, I'm just going to start again. And I went to California and, um, and I stumbled on this guy. I was looking for an apartment. I met a guy named Ed Ward, who was one of the original Rolling Stone editors. Yeah. And, and, and that's this whole story in itself. But, um, and he eventually gave me an assignment. Oh man. So all right, what was that assignment? My first uh, assignment from Edward. Oh, I think it was actually, he, he, um, he was, uh, at this point, he was freelance, and he was the West Coast editor of Cream. Okay. And he was also, the, he was the book review editor for a, a San Francisco City magazine. And he was, he did, he just, he cobbled together all these freelance jobs to make a living. And uh, so I think my first ever, you know, published piece was a review of, of a book, Thomas McGuane's uh, 92 in the Shade. Oh, wow. And, and, and then I think the second thing I wrote for the same magazine was just kind of a little uh, flavor piece about uh, I went to a kind of local small rodeo and I wrote about that. But then uh, Ed got me. Oh, he had me go interview. Um, oh, shut up. I can't. I, um, Earl Scruggs, oh. uh, the great, the great, the famous, the innovative banjo player. Who yeah, basically just taught. It changed banjo, you know, which is, sounds like a joke, but it's not. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I in interviewed him, and um, I think that was the third thing I wrote. So that was oh, that wow. was interesting. I mean, you know, he was actually not really a very forthcoming guy. He was, you know, he was a, <laughs> really? kind of a shy, a shy, quiet guy, and uh, it was a boring interview. But, yeah. <laughs> but and then one of the early things I I, I also did. I started, Ed put me on to uh, freelancing for cream and uh, he got me, they wanted somebody to write a story about this new band. They were an opening act at the time and they were coming to San Francisco for the first time. Again, I moved all around the country. So at this point I'm in San Francisco. So that didn't last long but right. the first time. Now I've been here for more than 30 years, uh, 36 years, I think. Wow. Uh, but anyways, he had me go do the story on, on, on this band kiss. And, uh, wow. and so that was one of the first, maybe kind of featurey stories I had. Oh, and, wow. Uh, yeah. But they were still and an I opening act at that time. They said they were, but they had their, like their kiss sign, their light up <laughs> kiss sign. And they were, I don't know if they were doing pyro at the time, but they were still Gene was puking up blood. And, <laughs> you know, they were pretty much doing their headliner act. And I, I, for the life of me, I can't remember who the, 
who the headliner was, but it just jumped in my head. It might have been Fog Hat. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, I went to interview them, and it was the day Paul Stanley had gotten his famous rose tattoo on his uh, oh. shoulder. And he came in, he was late for the interview, he came in, he'd just gotten that. And, uh, and you know, they, they were uh, nice enough that I thought their show was awful. I yeah. thought it was like, <laughs> what are these stupid songs and this, uh, and this kind of, all this showbiz shit. I was, I was still stuck in the, you know, authentic, my authenticity phase. Right. So, uh, <laughs> uh, it seemed inauthentic, but you know, hey, uh, people so, loved yeah, it. I, I was like 20, I was 21. I is that when you started to write for Cream on a, on a full-time basis after that? Well, I, I, I uh, again, I will move back to New York, and I was freelancing for a few places, including Cream. Yeah. And then a guy named John Morthland, who I'd also met through Ed Ward, uh, called me up and said what I want. He was now the interim editor of, of, uh, of Cream. Okay. And he called me up and said uh, uh, he was going to kind of, put it back on the rails after it had become somewhat derailed following the departure of its signature editor, uh, Dave Marsh, okay. young Dave Marsh. And uh, so Mortham was needed some help. He called me up, said, you want to come and be copy boy at cream? And uh, I'm like, fuck yeah. I was sleeping on my friend's couch yeah. and, I was, and I was broke. And I'm like, you know, as long as it pays something, I'll, I'm coming. And I went out right. to Detroit and, you know, just coldest, darkest January, and, oh. and John Moore, John Morthland and Lester Banks picked me up in Lester's red Camaro. You know, his his, uh, <laughs> his just dirty, just falling apart red Camaro, and and so I started working there on staff, and I, it, it, you know, and I I started doing shit work, but then I started writing more and more, and then. Morthland left and then a couple other editors came and went because, you know, Lester would more or less chase them away. They would say, this guy's unmanageable. And then, you know, with all my, you know, year and a half or something of experience, the publisher, Barry, uh, Barry Kramer said to me, um, took me, gave me a ride home one day and his fancy Lincoln Continental said, you want to be, um, would you like to be editor of the magazine? And I'm like, again, I'm like, um, maybe I'm 22 at this point. And, uh, and, 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 and but I'm a genius because this is what I said to him. I said, (laughs) no, I don't think, I don't think you should make me editor. I think we should give Lester the title of editor. I said, and then you make me, we'll, we'll create this new position, managing editor. And, so Lester will have all the honor of being the editor, but he won't have to do anything but do what he does now, which is right. Okay. And, and I'll manage all the shit, which Lester was not going to be capable of. And I'm, I'm not exactly the, a great manager, but I, I was a great manager of people. I understood psychology. I mean, I just had it. it, it I didn't study it. I just, right. I just, it's an I innate thing. people and then, and, and people enjoyed hanging with me and I enjoyed hanging with people. And, and so I became managing editor. Lester was editor and it worked like a charm. Lester and I were really close. So, uh, it just worked like a charm. And we, Lester never, you know, and I would edit his, <laughs> his copy and everything. That was my meteoric rise. <laughs> From copy boy to the managing editor. Yeah. So yeah. 
Yeah, Cream was always like the uh, the, the funnier, sar- more sarcastic alternative to, to publications like Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone, and, uh, Stone yeah. Was yeah. that was that the plan from the beginning of the magazine? Just just to always be, uh, you know, a little more pointed. Well, it was certainly the by the time I got there. So I got there in like oh seventy five or something. I started writing for him maybe seventy four. Okay. Uh, and, and the magazine had been around since 69 or 70. And, and, you know, it had this, the original, the guy who founded it, uh, wanted it to be like, uh, you know, almost like an, an academic musicological thing, uh, you know, with, with radical tendencies. And and so, but he, he, but Barry bought him out and, and, and then somehow found Dave Marsh and, uh, Dave Marsh wanted to make it political. So uh, Dave Marsh was, you know, he was like a white Panther, the, the group in Detroit, which was oh, the, wow. the, the young white hipsters who supported the black Panthers. Right. They, they were their own kind of group, revolutionary group would be, wow. you know, and that was the MC five were the, the band for the white Panthers and, and, and John Sinclair and all that. So, so it, Detroit at that time was very political. And, you know, this is the time of the, when the, um, the what we called riots at the time, but we might call a rebellion now. And there was there was all that when they burned Detroit down a lot of it. Yeah. And, and so it was a very political scene. And, you know, the auto industry was just starting to hit the skids. Yeah. And, and and so under Marsh, the magazine became much more political. Okay. But when but, but Marsh Harry uh, hired Lester and Lester was. You know, that um, really making fun of everything, that total iconoclasm right. um, in, in, a, in a satirical way was was that was really Lester's personality and, and uh, influence. So it was absolutely the case that it was distinct from all the other music magazines. And that's why it called itself America's only rock and roll magazine. It was distinguishing itself from Rolling Stone, which had kind of moved off into putting movie stars on the cover and had definitely lost whatever edge it had at the beginning. Oh yeah, so, for sure. Then, so, but, it, but there was no business plan uh, that said, okay, we're going to make this the funny magazine. Okay. And, uh, uh, absolutely not. There was no plan <laughs> for anything. And it was just, you know, it was just, again, just chance that threw together uh, certain personalities. I mean, there was uh, Lester and Janowski and people who liked to be, and, and me and people who were just you know, a little bit outrageous and funny and, and <laughs> outspoken. And uh, so, so yeah, no business plan. But, <laughs> but kismet. Is, I think that the best businesses uh, work without, you know, work best without business plans and certainly creative businesses. It's like, exactly. You know, yeah. So it's hard to be creative when you're worried about metrics. Yeah. And, you know, we were excited. We would get the, the, the uh, circulation folks would come in and say, oh, my God, this I remember the, you know, the, during the period when I was a managing editor, we we really grew the circulation. But it was kind of grew it by, you know, it was by being more and more outrageous. So, <laughs> so and you were only managing editor there for about a year. 
probably in. Wow. I was only there like a year and a half. Wow. And and it's it's haunted me my whole life yeah. ever since. <laughs> but uh yeah. And you yeah. it apparently too. And and me it. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I I was very excited to. You know, I knew there was something really cool going on there and and I was and I were and I thought, boy, it'd be it's to be too bad for all this fun writing and these I mean, there was stuff to just make you laugh your ass off. And, and, and uh, a guy, I remember Rick Johnson, uh, you know, he was such a funny writer and Lester, of course. And, right, uh, yeah. And, um, and, and I thought, oh, man, this is all going to disappear in the mists of time. And uh, so I was, I was really uh, happy and excited when, like, the, doc- the documentary happened. And, yeah. Uh, and I was happy to be part of it. And, uh and you know so at what point did you start writing books um <laughs> i went back to new york from detroit i got in a you know i got in a i got in an argument where i was completely on the wrong side <laughs> with, with the publisher and i and we didn't duke it out or something i just i didn't like he was <laughs> he was imagine this he was withholding my paychecks because i disappeared for like four days <laughs> And he, and he was like, he was like, no, fuck that. I'm going to hold your paycheck this week. Right. You disappeared for four days. And what I had done, I had a girlfriend in New York. I had run back to New York. Uh, so, so, but I was indignant. How yeah. dare you? You know, and you know, imagine it, it was just what an asshole. And, then, and, uh, and hey, Kramer was an asshole too, but he, you know, I, I really think it was my, it was me in this case. And, and so I just said, all right, well, fuck it. And I, that night I packed up my six, my car that I had bought for $65, much as Thomas, my character in Loudmouth does. And I, and I drove back to New York and the car just died in front of my girlfriend's house. And, uh, and that was, that was fine. And, and of course I, you know, she had called me and said, Oh yeah, it's something's happening. And, and of course I got back there and she was with another dude. No. So I was like, fuck, I just threw away my job. <laughs> and it was a damn good job because you had a lot of freedom. Oh yeah. And you, you know, you a lot of creative, you know, ferment. And yeah, exactly. So, uh, so you, I went back to New York, and, you know, again, back to living on couches and stuff. And, and, uh, <laughs> and, but people started tracking me down and, and like, like, uh, Paul Nelson from certain was, was a great writer and kind of a famous guy in, in rock circles gave, you know, kind of gave a, a start to Dylan in that he gave Dylan all these folk records that Dylan then devoured and, yeah. and regurgitated. But anyways, he called me up and said, Hey, people seem to like my writing. I didn't personally like my writing, but uh, I thought I was way, you know, way not there yet. But one day, so I was, had a freelance writing career. I was actually offered the editorship of Circus at one point. Turned it down. Thought, no, fuck it. I'm I'm going to be a big shot. Right. And uh, one one day, I'm at a a press party for Ozzy Osbourne, and um, it, I don't know, it was a solo record or Black Sabbath record. It was like seventy six, seventy seven, I think. Okay. And uh, and Ozzy was like kind of on a chair in a dark corner of this ballroom, and just completely nodded out, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I said to the publicist, I said, I, I, 
I kind of like to meet Ozzy. And, and so she took me over there and she had to like Ozzy. Ozzy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, so we, you always went to press parties because there's no money we're writing about rock and roll. Right. So there wasn't then and there isn't now, I'm sure. Uh, is there rock and roll anymore? I don't know. But That's uh, another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you, you go to press parties because you would get free food. And more importantly, free booze. Oh, and so I'm on the you know buffet line get, to get my free food, and and the guy behind me is is this guy Richard Robinson, who was married to Lisa Robinson. They were both wrote for Cream, but he was a really uh, really interesting uh, guy. And, and one of the things interesting things he did was produce Lou Reed's first solo album, oh. before, just just before the um, you know Walk on the Wild Side album. And, uh, but he said to me, Hey, uh, you know, somebody I know, an editor I know is looking for somebody to write an unauthorized biography of kiss. Okay. And I had been writing all these articles about kiss, uh, to, both to make money and to goof on kiss. <laughs> and I would, and so I would do this shit where I would write negative article one week and in this publication and a positive article in another publication the next week and just could kind of go on like that. Okay. And you know, all this, this stuff was always kind of, uh, in either case, it was way over exaggerated. I was just having, <laughs> I was having fun. And, and uh, but the, he, he knew that I'd been doing all these articles. So he, so he gave me this guy's number and I, you know, quickly signed a book deal for this, for this kiss book with, uh, you know, it wasn't my dream book. I thought I was going to become a famous novelist. Right. And, uh, but, but that kiss book wound up, you know, we were, we were really pathetically broken. The kiss book wound up keeping us going for about three years. It sold, wow. it sold hundreds of thousands of copies all around uh, several in Japan and America. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> and then you, you started, you, you written other books. Um, well, then, then I wanted to get, you know, I wanted to do my, I was kind of embarrassed by the kids book. Oh, really? Okay. I, I was so excited when like, uh, this guy, the reviewer in the Austin American Statesman said, Hey, this is, this book is all tongue in cheek. It's really funny too. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, yes, dude, I was so I was so happy somebody had, had somebody had, figured it out. Somebody got it. So there was a few folks, but um, but then I wanted to do my my real book, and I was constantly sending out book proposals, and I I got an agent through having the Kiss book, and um, and uh, you know I, I had this proposal I didn't even understand what the book was about. But it was a nonfiction <laughs> book, and it was kind of about the um, how rock and roll values and attitudes and and even, you know, objects and products and all had been kind of consumed, subsumed into the mainstream, into the media and into just really disparate things like even uh, what I had, the Sikorsky Helicopter Company, you know. Oh, so really? This, so my proposal was that I was going to interview, like, for instance, the guy at Sikorsky and then you know, here's how what how that affected how rock and roll affected it. So it was called oh, wow. the noise notes from a rock and roll era. And uh, and this one, you know, the, the, my agent found this publisher. This was a really prestigious publisher and called Tickner and Fields. They were owned by Houghton Mifflin. Okay. They were an old they were an old imprint that they had decided to revive as their prestige, like their. You know, in that this might be too inside book, but like Knopf is to Random House. It was so okay. 
This guy who used to run the Yale University Press before he did this, he fucking loved my my proposal. Oh wow! And he and he had me in. He says, "I think you're, you know," and, and my sample chapters I'd written. And he says, "Oh, I just think you're one of the, the most brilliant young writers I, I've I've met in my career." And blah blah. And, wow. and you know, again, I, I think I was 24 at this point. Oh, so God. so, and they gave me and they gave me a huge advance for the time. It would be a huge advance today. It was like, it was like 15 grand. Which oh, was, wow. Uh, you know, you don't get that. You, you don't get that now. You didn't get that then. Right. But to, and to me, that was, a, that was money. That was a year's salary there. And they, uh, oh, and he, they were, they planned to put it out in hardcover and in paperback. Oh. And they were just, they had, my head was so swollen by the time <laughs> I left that office that it was, you know, I was terrified. Holy shit. Now I got to live up to this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was, and I was, you know, and also swollen you know, ego. And it was just guaranteed that that book was going to fail because, you know, it was like, I was going to hit for the fences. I'm going to be fucking famous writer now, you know, and all that. And, yeah. uh, and well, that's exactly the way you don't become a famous writer. So, <laughs> So the book, the book did eventually come out, and and I could by the time it, it took me three years to write it, oh, but, it's, wow. but which was it was supposed to be done in a year, and the publisher got mad and, and wanted to, you know, he wanted I mean he wanted to not give me the rest of my advance, and I and this is how cheeky I was, and I think wow what balls I I, I said to him. I said, well, I think you should pay me three times as much because I took three times as long to do it. <laughs> and uh, so I ain't backing off. And so, you know, they gave me the rest of the money. Wow. But it was, it was really, a, that was really a painful experience. But that was, you know, that was kind of my serious book. It's better. At the time, I thought, oh, my God, I don't even know what this book's about. But <laughs> there's still people out there who really who like that book. And uh, it gets quoted places. And I think it's probably better than I think, but I can't bring myself to read it ever. Oh really? And then I wrote, and then I wrote uh, oh, I wrote a quickie, a book of about dead rock stars, and I called it, uh, I called it either Dead Rock Stars or Rock and Roll Book of the Dead, and it was just profiles of stars who died, and okay. um, you know, but written in kind of an irreverent manner. And then when I gave it to the publisher, they decided they wanted to change the title to the title of a billy joel song and i said you are not fucking putting out a i'm not i don't want my name on a book that has a bill you know they so they call it all only the good guy young and my name is on it uh. but you know i did it for money and you know but i think you do get at least get the subtitle there right yeah yes i, I did yeah. it does say, but it was like no not a billy joel song just anything but i'm not really he's not even dead yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> that was, you know, and then I did a few other weird things. I did some ghostwriting and stuff like that. So that's how I got into books. And but I hadn't written a book in oh thirty more than thirty years till I wrote this one. How long did it? Or at what point did you start writing this? Was it, did it take as long or longer than than uh, the noise? Oh shit! It took for you know because I was writing it. I, I had no. I didn't have an editor coming to my door to collect the manuscript like I did with the noise. <laughs> right. He, he like called me up and said, I'm coming down there and I'm going to, I want the manuscript. He says, wow. just give me what you got. Fortunately, I had, I'd written so much <laughs> that I had a credible manuscript. 
but no, this thing, I, because I didn't have that guy, I was just writing it on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, oh, it took like probably six years to, oh. to write it. And uh, I wrote way more than you see, obviously. I must have written twice as much or more. And, you know, I didn't even know what I was, was writing. I, I, I wrote a story about this. In, it's in the uh, online publication Lit Hub which is, you know, literary kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. And they, they, they said, oh, right, right. You know, what was one of the experiences that shaped your book? And I, I, I assumed that they were, they were really, they were kind of fishing for me to write some rock star stuff. And uh, instead, I told them the truth that the book started when I was walking out of my apartment in San Francisco one day. And a guy jumped off the 22-story roof and, you know, landed next to me and completely traumatized me. And, and then I kind of started doing my own therapy. I'll send you the, the story. I, I'm really proud of it. Yeah. But, um, and, but I started doing my, I was, I couldn't sleep. I was, you know, I was really just, just really damaged. And, and, uh, and I just started writing and I wrote for 13 months and then at the end of 13 months, I thought, man, I feel better. And I, I feel, and, but I was writing like a maniac. I was writing at work. I was writing at nights and weekends. I was just like, ah. You were Lester banging, bangsing it. Exactly. And, um, and at the, after 13 months, when it kind of seemed to subside, and I realized it was some sort of self-therapy. I was, I really had been traumatized by this. The idea of talking about the way I'm talking about it now or writing about it, just was out of the question after it happened. I couldn't right. couldn't talk to my wife about it. It was just like, uh, and uh, so that's where the book started. And at some point, I thought, wait a second, what is all this stuff? If I took out this chapter, and uh, I didn't know that they were chapters. If I took out this story, <laughs> would would this be you know would this be a book? Could this be a can you know a book with some kind of arc? Right. And, so that's where it started. So it started with that, and then I spent five years rewriting it. Oh, wow. Well, you just mentioned your wife, who is a fantastic yeah. photographer and artist. Yeah. And the book came out. Ronnie Hoffman. Yes. Yeah, Ronnie Hoffman. The, the book, immortal Ronnie Hoffman. The book actually was released and was came out on my 19th wedding anniversary, October 6th. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. So, well... Happy anniversary. Thank you. That's I appreciate it. That was my present to you. <laughs> I, you didn't get that? I, I, the, the note wasn't in the book, so I, but I kind of figured. Dude, it must have fallen out. Uh, I think, fallen out. I'm sure Morgan mentioned something about it. Yeah. But, yeah. but you have a really interesting story about how you met your wife. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Ronnie and I, who have been married, like, about more than twice as long as you. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I had come back to New York from Detroit, and I this girlfriend had thrown me over, you know, this girlfriend I came back to be with. It was like, what the fuck? Right. So I, I was in bad shape. So like, a couple of my friends said, a group of guys said, well, let's all go go out drinking. And so we went to a bar called Jimmy Day's in the village. It's on West 4th Street, positively 4th Street. Uh, there's always the <laughs> rock and roll connection. Yeah. And, um, and, and one of my friends was, was explaining to me in that kind of drunk logic way. He said, you know, you know what you need? He's going to, this is the big revelation. You know what you need? No, no, listen to me. You know what you need? And this, this is in the, in the book, I expropriated it for the book, but he says, you know, you need to find a new girlfriend. 
was his <laughs> big his, like and, that was uh, it, huh? yeah he was a genius <laughs> yeah. and uh but i said dude god damn it you're right you know you're just you're <laughs> and so and you know within moments there was two girls walking past the window outside Jimmy Day's bar. And I spotted these two girls and I said, oh, you know, and I found one of them, you know, as kind of interesting, seemed interesting. And yeah. so I ran out the door of Jimmy Day's and I grabbed this girl's arm. <laughs> now, I, as it says in the book, it was a, it was a relatively chaste and polite grab, but it was a grab nonetheless. <laughs> and I would be in a me too dungeon right now <laughs> if, if I did that today. But so I grabbed this girl, Hey girls. And she said, get your hands off me. And, uh, and they kept, they kept walking. So I, I walked backwards for blocks because I'm a, you know, I'm just a crazy obsessive dude, you know? Right. And, uh, I walk backwards. I'm saying, where are you girls going? You know, let me buy you a drink. Come on, blah, blah, blah. The other girl was, um, she was wearing a cutoff blue jean jacket and uh, she was all really muscly. And she had the, um, she had just gotten a, a tattoo on her forearm oh. that all encircling a, a kind of a, most of a sleeve on her forearm. Oh, wow. And at this time, and it was just, she was just right out of the tattooist. I found out later, but and at this time, tattooing was illegal in New York, oh, in New York man. city. It was, if you can even imagine, and, and wow. tattooed women were real. That was for the circus. Right, yeah. <laughs> a girl with a giant tattoo and, and she, she was tough. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm a little intimidated by her, but her friend was, her friend, uh, her friend was, was much more kind of, uh, she would neither of them were paying any attention to me, but, right. uh, but her friend was more, I found her more appealing. And but so I'm backing up down the street. Where are you girls going? Let me buy you a drink, blah, blah, blah. You know, one of them, the nun, her, and not Helen, Helen was the, the, the one with the tattoos. Okay. And uh, is she, but the other one said, um, Oh, well, we're going to the bottom line, which was a big club in oh, yeah. New York. Yeah. It was a famous, uh, a famous, uh, nightclub and all these rock acts would, you know, that was kind of a, a showcase place. And, yeah. um, so I said, you go to the bottom line. I said, Oh, you know, I said, who are you going to see? And they said, uh, and you know, this, this, this is all halting conversation, but she said, uh, Oh, we're going to see Elliot Murphy, uh, Elliot Murphy. I don't know if you know him. Yeah. He's still, he's, he's now doing concert. He lives in, in Paris and he now does, does doing concerts for the quarantine era. And it's kind of interesting. Oh, cool. and, but, but Elliot Murphy was a, a, what they called a new Dylan. He was going to be, you know, he was one of the guys that, that the press had had uh, anointed as the next Dylan. Right. And, yeah. Uh, and so he was, you know, more or less a folk singer, or at least that's what they had uh, done with him. But, but he, you know, he was on RCA. I knew, I knew of him because Ed Ward had taught me a lot of stuff about music and had played me Elliot Murphy records. Okay. When, uh, back when he, I, he had started, like I said, when I said I knew nothing about music, it was Ed Ward and John Morthland and then Lester Banks who made me, who taught me everything. And, um, and, and so I, I knew Elliot Murphy. So I said to the girl, I said, and, and I knew Elliot Murphy since I'd been at cream, I knew all the publicists and I, and I could get into all the clubs free. And, you know, it was just, so I said, shit. I said, uh, I can get you in free. He was, I knew he was on RCA. Yeah. I said, I can get you in free. Uh, and this girl said, um, 
Well, we're already getting it free. Oh. What the fuck? You know, just stabbed in the heart. It can't win. And and, and so uh, I said, well, why are you getting it free? And she says, well, uh, Helen is a singer. She went under the name Helen Wheels. She uh, she actually wrote uh, some songs for Blue Oyster Cult. Oh wow! Uh, she went out with Albert Bouchard for a, a while. Oh, uh, former and, guest. Yeah, yeah. Well, Albert knew that. Uh, and then she says, you know, and, and I'm a photographer. She's a singer. I'm a photographer. And I go, you're a photographer. I go. You know, and how many people are there in New York, right? And how many, you know, there's 8 million people in New York. There are 4 million women. And, you know, 2 million of them are photographers. So, right. <laughs> uh, so I said, well, you're a photographer. I said, well, what's your name? And she said, uh, Ronnie Hoffman. And I said, Ronnie Hoffman? I'm Duncan from Cream. I sent you a check last week. <laughs> which was... Which was one of my duties as managing editor was to send out the checks. And I go, oh, and so it's like, so then after about 20, 30 minutes of being away, I managed to, I got the girls to come back to the bar with me. Oh, and, wow. uh, and uh, we all get, we had drinks and then we went to, then uh, that was Ronnie, uh, Ronnie and I, and, and, and Helen wheels and, and another one of my friends, we went to see Elliot Murphy at the bottom line. Wow. For free. Uh, yeah. And uh, and I got thrown out because I was being loud. I was being a loudmouth at the bar. I was, I, you know, I was trying to impress the girls, and I'm, and I'm, I don't whatever. I'm drunk. I'm right. Drunk. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, so eventually, so you know, Ronnie said, "Well, you know, I was, I was having trouble walking." So she, she says, "Well, you can come over to my place. You know, it's not far from here." And so she helped walk me there, and. And things led to things. And I woke up the next morning. The phone was ringing in Ronnie's apartment. Okay. And, and she goes and answers it. And um, and it's our mutual friend, John Mortland. And he's calling her specifically to tell her. He said, you know, this guy came back to town, to New York from uh, Cream, from Detroit. Robert Duncan, I think you would really like him. Uh <laughs> And she said, he's right here. So <laughs> that's, that's the story. And I, I, I changed the names in the, in the, in the, in the novel, but I didn't, uh, but the stories, that's the story. That is an amazing story. I love yeah, it. It was, it was amazing. Yeah. And then, and we've been together for forever. And you guys were married and went on a honeymoon with Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah. We got married about nine months later and, and then, and then I, I, uh, we were, well, the, anyways, I had an appendicitis. Like we, so we, we, oh. whatever, <laughs> we didn't have any money for a honeymoon, but a year later we were, we, um, Ronnie and her old boyfriend before me, Richard Meltzer had written, wrote, um, lyrics for Blue Oyster Cult as did Sandy Perlman. Yeah. And, uh, of course, Buck Dharma wrote lyrics. Uh, but Ronnie and her old boyfriend had lived in the Blue Oyster Cult house, wow. uh, out in Long Island when they were still, soft white underbelly and even the stock forest group, which preceded oh, yeah. that. Yep. And, um, so she, she knew them all and I had gotten to know them because I had liked them and I had written about them for cream. So I had gotten to be friendly with them. Okay. And, uh, and so when, and, and so th- and some of them were at our wedding, in fact, 
Wow. Some of the lawyers are called and, and dictators and Lester and oh, one of Tish and Snooky, you know, and it kind of, it was kind of a cool, it was, it was a cool thing. And, uh, but the, 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 after we got a year later, after I got over my appendicitis and, and all this, uh, Sandy Perlman, who was their manager, Ronnie was designing a, a, a book, a song book for the boys who called and they said, well, why, Sandy said, why don't you come to Europe? We'll, we'll pick it up. Come, to, They were going on tour in Europe. So we went to Europe for a month with the Blue Oyster Cult. And, and <laughs> two, two weeks of that was with them. And then and wow. then Sandy gave us the rental car and said, here, you can just take the car and go wherever you want. Wow. Uh, and, you know, we, we became very good friends with Sandy. And, and, and before he died, we had became his... Uh, we became his uh, conservators oh, because wow. he was he, he had an aneurysm and he was incapacitated. Yeah. So, uh, so I mean that it, it's amazing to me. That, so that the so we knew Sandy for fifty years or something. Wow. And oh, the Blue Oyster Cult. So I knew the boy. I've known the Blue Oyster Cult for forty years. That's years. And, oh my gosh. And, uh, in fact, I've just been I've been communicating this week with the. Uh, Buck Dharma, uh, oh. some stuff, and we saw we saw Albert a few years ago. Oh, that's awesome! And and we had a, um, I know we had a we had a memorial service for Sandy Perlman when he did die, which was about three years ago. Um, yeah, in our uh, in our bar at our, you know, we have this design and ad agency, our company, and 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 uh, and Albert came and played, and oh, uh, awesome. Oh. Greg, uh, Greg from the Angry Samoans. Uh, what's his name? Greg. Uh, oh yeah, Dick Turner. No, yes, Greg Turner from the Angry Samoans. Angry and Patty Samoans Smith and Lenny Patty Smith and Lenny K. And we had like you know, there's maybe 50, 60 people in the room. That's wow. what the room holds. And and there's there's Patty and and uh, so anyways, yes, and Angry Samoans. And the Angry Samoans. Yeah. <laughs> those are those guys are great. They're great. He's he's great. Yeah, Greg Turner is great. Um, so, anyways, yes, well, we get deep, long history with with the with the Blue Oyster Cult. Oh um, man! I mean, Ronnie designed one of their album covers. Uh, oh, that's right. Specters with Godzilla on it. Yes, which and, was the the lyrics of that were inspired kind of by Patty Smith. She has a does does she have a song on it? Well. She was supposed it's to, Sandy. from what I understood from, from talking with, with Albert, was that uh, Buck and Patty were supposed to get together to write something oh, yeah. with Godzilla, but uh, she had to go on tour or something, and, and couldn't, so he ended up, they, they wanted to yeah. write a song about Godzilla, they thought it would be a great idea, and she wasn't available, yeah. so he ended up doing it anyway, but... Yeah. So. I remember, you know, we became very uh, close with Sandy, Sandy Perlman, who manager lyricist uh, yeah. producer for the blue oyster cult and and basically kind of uh, there the Svengali who who cooked up the the name of the band comes from a poem he wrote yeah and uh but say i remember that sandy came over to our our apartment the night he, he was working on specters and he said um he says oh, i just bought the rights to, uh, to use uh godzilla as a song title um, on the new album. And I said, yeah, well, how much do you pay? He said, $10,000. I'm like, $10,000. What the fuck? <laughs> you know, that, I mean, you know, in 1977, that was a lot of money. Yeah. And, uh, or it seemed like a lot of money, but 
but and I, I just like really you know and I wasn't into like campy monster movies and all that stuff. Ronnie is, yeah. And I'm like I just like whatever. Dude. I said you're crazy, and uh, you know, so he wasn't. <laughs> so all right, I, I did read on your company's websites that you've flown on a private jet with Keith Richards. You have jammed true, true. jammed with Blue Oyster Cult. Oh, yeah, I forget about that. And I reminded Albert of that one day. We were we, Albert was living out in like Connecticut or something. I think it was Albert's house. Well, Albert was married, living out in Connecticut. He had a kid, his wife Karen, who was really sweet. Um, and uh, and we went for a barbecue. We were invited for a barbecue, and it was like the band and us, and there wasn't really anybody else. And so they started. Albert had a studio in his garage. I'm pretty sure it was Albert's house. And um, and uh, and they started playing songs, and I and I just started singing, oh, and, and wow. they were like, "Wow, you're." you're a good singer, yeah, which, which, which I, which I was still am. Yeah. But, uh, but, um, yeah. So yeah. And you also serenaded Sammy Hagar and Liza Minnelli at, at different times, but yes, I did. That, yes, I did. How did that come Sam, about? Well, Sammy Hagar came about because we, <laughs> at our, at our agent, at our agency, which we do design work and we do advertising work and we've been around now, we've been around 30 years wow. and, uh, in San Francisco. And we, at one point we were doing, we had, we were doing, uh, some radio ads for Sammy Hagar's, you know, tequila. Oh yeah. And, and so Sammy came and, and my, one of my partners had, had written the, the spot and it had, it had singing in it it had a it had a jingle or it was a or it was a probably a comic jingle because uh, uh, it was we were again we're yeah, my partner makes fun of everything too so uh <laughs> and, and so but he he went on vacation and sammy wanted to come over and you know hear the new spot so i had to i had to sing the new radio spot to sammy acapella in the uh in the in our conference room oh so that my was, gosh that was Sammy and Liza Minnelli. I mean, there's... Is that the infamous is, Liza Minnelli, Farrah Fawcett story? Well, that's not that story. Oh, okay. But it is... It's the <laughs> same era and participants. But, oh, boy. But, but Liza, Liza... You know, I, I never... I never let... You know, rock stars or anybody. I, maybe because I was arrogant or or something. I, I would never let them. I would never kiss ass. You know. So um, I got that we, feeling. Yeah. So my um, my my one of my childhood friends married Liza Minnelli, and at the time in New York, that was a big fucking deal. Oh yeah. And so you could do shit like which we did one night, uh, among many other wild things. You know, she could call up a. a a supper club where they had a, you know, piano and say, Hey, can we take over the place after hours? Wow. And so we would go in and, and I remember getting up and singing. Yeah. So I said, Oh, let me get up on the stage. And I sang New York, New York, and, <laughs> <laughs> which was, which was her signature song. Yeah. So she was not, she didn't like that. No, she didn't. <laughs> and, she, she doesn't uh, have a sense but, of humor. Yeah, she she did, but you know, she she actually did. She was she was nice, nice, plenty nice to us. And it was the it was the you know the height of the cocaine epidemic in New York, and yeah. so it was like 
you know, they were always coked up. Um, we couldn't afford cocaine, but <laughs> when we go to their house, there was, there was a big fishbowl of it on the, on the bar. So, uh, <laughs> so there was lots of that. And, uh, Oh yeah, you, you want me to tell you the Farrah Fawcett story? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I I'm familiar with it. Is. I've got no time limit at all. So, well, the Farrah Fawcett story is that um, when my friend turned, my friend who married Liza turned thirty, or was about to turn thirty. Yes, he asked Liza to. Uh, he was a guy who came from modest circumstance. You know, he was, he was a scholarship boy at school and all this stuff. Yeah. So. But, you know, he, so this was his entry into the big time. Um, and he has said to her, can, can she give him a 30th birthday party where she invites all her friends from Holly? Right. Okay. And so of course, it's Liza Minnelli, who's the daughter of, of Judy Garland and Vincent Minnelli knows right. everybody in Holly, the director of Vincent Minnelli, uh, knows everybody in Hollywood. So, so, and we were invited because we, I was, we were, Ronnie and I were together and we were, I, I was his childhood friend. I'd known him since sixth grade or something. Okay. And uh, so, and so we went to the party and it was like fucking just unbelievable. You know, here's, here comes Lucille Ball. Uh, it was only a few months before her death, but oh. who has Lucille Ball at a party? I mean, it's not like, you know, it, you know, it's, it's I love Lucy. Yeah. So here comes Lucille Ball. And then at another point, I discover, oh, shit, that's Gregory Peck. This is in her New York apartment, you know, and as you come in, there's a portrait by Andy Warhol of her mother, Judy Garland. And, you know, it's just all sorts of shit like that. I think Andy Warhol was there. Martin Scorsese was there. Um, uh, At one point, you know, and it was lots of drinking, I mean, for me, lots of drinking. <laughs> and uh, so I was just raising hell. But at one point, I'm, I'm talking. Uh, I'm talking to. Um, I'm talking to Harvey Keitel, the actor. The actor had been was in a lot of. Oh yeah. Movies. And he was in. You know, he was in Pulp Fiction. You know. He yeah, was, Mr. Wolf. Mr. Wolf. And um, so I love Harvey Keitel. So I'm chatting with Harvey Keitel over here, and over here is Meatloaf. You know, uh, do people remember Meatloaf? Yeah. So Meatloaf, and we're we're just chat and Meatloaf's wife, and we're just chatting, chatting. Mrs. Chatting Loaf, like, Mrs. Loaf. So you, uh, yeah, I don't remember what her name is, <laughs> but it was funny. Uh, the Meatloaf is is I guess trying to lose weight or is supposed right. to lose weight because he was a pretty hefty guy, right? And, but he kept you know scarfing hors d'oeuvres off the tray <laughs> as it passed. And he was just wolf, you know, scarfing him down. And his wife would do, I think his name is Marvin. I think so. Yeah. Marvin, and she'd slap his hand and say, you're not supposed to do that. And, and, and slap his hand. And this was just cracking me up. Yeah. You know, big old meatloaf. His wife is slapping him down. And so that was, just, that, that's just a flavor of it. At one point, at one point, um, a little a te- young teenager went through the party, and I'm like, "Who the fuck is this?" Um, and and uh, and so I'm you know I'm checking him out, and I realized the teenager is you know he's got dark hair and he's but he's got stage makeup on, and I realized it was Al Pacino. Oh my god! <laughs> so Al Pacino looked like a 14 year old boy. He's so little you know he's oh, wow. he's short and he's petite and he just looked like in, in, in his stage makeup he, i thought he was like a 14 year old boy he'd just oh. come from 
uh, being on Broadway. So uh, I, I thought, yeah, I was wow. like that. And um, my wife says, wasn't Michael Jackson there? But I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. But he might have been. There was just... I can't remember everybody who was there. Right. At one point, I'm standing there talking to Meatloaf <laughs> and I hear a knock. I'm, we're near the door and I hear knocking at the door. And nobody's going to answer it. So, you know, I'm going to go answer the door. It lies in my house. And so I, I answered the door and, and, you know, I had written this kiss book and I'd written all these crazy articles about kiss and who's there, but Gene Simmons. And now oh my I, I, I can only imagine his horror um, because he's going to, you know, the A plus Hollywood party of all time, right? In right. New York City. And, and, and here's me, this little, this, this guy, this punk ass guy who's been making fun of him and all right. that shit. And so he just, he points at me and I point back at him, you know. And so eventually he says, well, let me introduce you to my date. And his date, his date, he didn't need to introduce his date because his date looked exactly like who she was with her giant smile and big hair. And it was uh, Diana Ross. Oh, my so God. He was dating Diana Ross at the time. Jeez. So so I let them in and, and the party went on. And um, again, I can't remember who the fuck was there, but any Hollywood person you could think of was there. And. So, you know, it rolls around around five o'clock in the morning. Again, there's a pattern here. I, I'm still drinking at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah. And finally, my, my, my friend Mark, it, it's down to me and Ronnie and Mark and Liza and, um, and Farrah Fawcett is there. And Ryan O'Neill, oh, and I'll tell you that at one point I was cruising around the party and I, I just went into the, you know, Liza's and Mark's bedroom and there was um, Ryan O'Neill sitting in a chair in the bedroom and and he had the, the biggest mound of cocaine you've ever seen on the table next to him. And I said, oh, hey, Ryan, I said, uh, can I have something? He said, don't have enough. Sorry. <laughs> oh, you prick. You know, and uh, although as somebody observed recently, they said um, they said, you know what? by the amount of cocaine that that man consumed, he probably didn't have enough. Uh, but I'm telling you, it had, it had topographical features, this, this mound of cocaine. And um, so he, uh, so anyways, it, it, the, the, at five in the morning, it's down to Farrah Fawcett and Ryan O'Neill are there. And so Mark is bugging me to leave. And so finally, it, it takes a long time to get me to leave. And so finally, I'm like, all right, fuck it, I'll leave. And I said, but I got to get my jacket. And I'm looking around for my jacket. I can't find my jacket. So now I'm making kind of a, a show out of not finding my jacket. And I'm yelling, who stole my fucking jacket? Blah, blah, blah. And it was just, you know, it's just some, uh, it was just a black windbreaker, nothing, yeah. nothing in jacket. And then Farrah Fawcett comes out of the bathroom. And she says, is this holds up looking for the camera? <laughs> she holds up and says, is this your jacket? And, and, it, and it was, and I'm like, Oh fuck Farrah. Yeah. You found my jacket. And so I should explain that when I was a kid, I went to summer camp and I was certified as a uh, Red Cross junior lifesaver. Okay. And the, and the last thing you had to do and to pass your certification is carry this, big greasy man who was much heavier than you out of the lake you know imagine you save somebody right. so i learned this fireman's carry from junior life saving and and i then as i got older i started to apply it in bars 
So I would go find the biggest person in a bar and I would say, Hey, let me, let me, let me, let me pick you up. And I, I, I was at the time I was skinnier and I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't a big muscle man, but it was, uh, so I would pick up big people and I'd run around the bar and that was my kind of, that was my bar gag. Oh, yeah. and, uh, so it, it turned into, so I ran to Farrah Fawcett and I grabbed her and threw her up on my back. This is to express my gratitude for finding my jacket. <laughs> yes. And I, uh, and I ran around the apartment and I'm jumping and screaming and I'm, 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 I'm you know, I'm, just, I'm playing it up as much as I can. Right. And, and Mark is saying, Hey dude, come on, come on, you know, give her back and all this. Give stuff. her back. You know, so, but, but, uh, you know, what, what do you, you think that's going to stop me? No, that, and, and Ryan is saying to Mark, but coked up Ryan is saying, uh, no man, no man, don't, don't, don't rattle him. Don't rattle him. Like, like I'm like actually uh, nuts yes. and I'm going to jump out the window with her or something. Oh, so, God. so I'm running around. So then now I'm just further emboldened and inflamed. And I grabbed Liza and I put Liza up on my shoulder. No, my back. And I got each of them. Uh, Farrah Fawcett, who was like the poster girl of the, she was huge at that time. Yeah. And she's, she's, and she weighed about, you know, 70 pounds. Yeah. And she had her little, um, brown leather micro skirt on, you know, and it was so, and so I got Liza up on the shoulder <laughs> and Farrah on, on that one. I think it's actually the shoulders I had them on. And I ran around the place with, uh, jumping over furniture and, and, you know, their marble floors okay. and, and, and just kept going. And, 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 you know, I always do things too long, yeah. uh, including tell this story, I'm sure. But, but I finally came back and I, I you know, is, is when they stopped asking me to, I finally came back and put the, the ladies down and then I took my jacket and I, and I left, you know, yeah. <laughs> and then um, the PS on this story is that about, Oh, maybe six weeks later, we were we weren't invited to that much at Liza's <laughs> house after that. But but they were they were having a dinner for somebody or birthday dinner or at, at, at a kind of casual restaurant on the Upper West Side, and and they had like twelve people and um, everybody was there. Robin Williams was there. And, oh, and wow. Robin, I remember Robin Williams arrived and he was there. Like there's like a bush in front. And he did like a whole shtick about coming out of the bush and, and this. So anyways, he was more there. cocaine and, stories there. Yeah, no doubt. And, and so the the only two seats, uh, Ryan and Farrow were invited, but the only two seats were at this point, everybody's there where the seats were opposite me, me and Ronnie. And <laughs> so Farrah Foster wound up having to sit opposite me. And I, and when she sat down, I said, Oh, Hey, Farrah, remember me? And she's like, yes. And then, nothing <laughs> so uh that's the postscript on that anyways that's that's, that's uh, you know that's, that's a great story that is a great story yeah it's 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 really true and you know and i have a witness for the parts that I, my wife was there yeah uh, although I, i'm not sure we were married but anyways it was oh yeah, it was man. Fun. we had lots of weird adventures with with Mark and Liza. Oh and, man. And, and, and fish bowls of cocaine. <laughs> well, that's how most good stories need to start. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've kept you quite a while. I mean, I really thank you so much. Oh, for, I've kept you. Oh, no, this, I'm, I'm having a blast listening to the stories. And uh, <laughs> where can people find the book? The book is uh, Loudmouth by by me. Robert Duncan is, is uh, you know, most bookstores will have it. It's online at, you know, bookshop.org, which is the indie thing and 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 it's at, at big bad amazon and it's yes. it's at barnes and noble and it's it's online it's in bookstores it's everywhere and now uh, and it's got there's a kindle edition and there's a, oh, cool. uh, a paperback edition and now there's an audiobook read by me recorded in my studio and that's awesome uh, it's pretty good too well you got uh, a great voice with little music interludes by my my brother's a musician, so oh, I got cool. him to do the little uh, you know between chapters thing, and it's kind of fun. Yeah, so you can, and that's available on Apple Books right now. It's supposed to be available on <laughs> on Amazon, but I, we don't know why they're so slow on uh, putting up the audio book. So so yes, it's available everywhere. It's and you can come and there the links to see it are on i have a website called duncanwrites.com mm-hmm. w-r-i-t-e-s and it has links to buy the book everywhere awesome. and it also has more bullshit about me and by me so and as links pictures to your, of some of this stuff and as links yeah. to your social media I believe, it right? does it does yeah so they can yeah. people can follow you see what you're up to uh, please do please do is there uh, active anything else coming down the pike now any new books in the works I got a couple of books I've been working on, but, uh, but they're, uh, they're, and they're way different. I got another novel and another nonfiction thing, way different, but cool. You know, they're, they're a ways away. So, Oh yeah. And you know, uh, I got approached, I got approached to, to make a movie of loudmouth. So oh, awesome. Uh, I'm sitting there one night and minding my own business and an email comes in and says, Hey, I want to do a, book of your i mean a movie of your thing and he's a screenwriter and a site i thought well this is gonna be some bullshit thing and i look him up he's like a you know a real deal screenwriter and oh wow so there's lots of things can happen in hollywood you know as my my friend who's a screenwriter down there says yeah you know it was very very slow but it was like (laughs) i'm like really you want to make a movie of my book and he he, so we had a whole long thing where he explained to me what he wanted to do oh wow that was kind of cool. That's awesome. That is yeah. really cool. So yeah, that was kind of cool. A fairly accurate interpretation of, of your story, your life is now possibly going to be a movie. The guy's working on a script. That's he says awesome. so. That is awesome. Yeah, yeah. And actually, he told me he wants to take a certain he t- a certain chunk out of the book, and and it includes it includes Ronnie. And he says so. Yeah, he wants to. We'll both be at it. Oh, nice. That's awesome. So, well, man. Yeah. I would love to invite you back on. Maybe we can get you and Morgan on at the same time. We can do uh, oh, anytime. Awesome. Maybe we can do something. I'll, I'll tell you what. What a I do. Cage match. Me and oh. me and Morgan. <laughs> there you a go. virtual cage match. Oh, that would be brilliant. I, I, I'll re- I'll be the uh, Mills Lane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and I will let you go. Thank you so much. It's been a blast. All right. Thank you, Mark. I will tell you anytime. Give me a holler.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 